Our scripture today comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, beginning at verse 24. What the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Are you sure that you want to get everything that you desire? You've seen how toddlers are. You know, you were once a toddler. You know how toddlers are. They want all kinds of things. Toddlers want, for example, dirt. They put it in their mouth. It's just the most valuable thing to them. And if mom knocks it out of their hand and says, no, 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 they get angry. They wail. They get turned against their mother because the dirt is what they want. You were once a toddler. What do you want now? You've changed. What are your desires now? And will you want them tomorrow? Will you want them a year from now? Will you want them 20 years from now? As we turn to our text in Proverbs chapter 10, the desire of the righteous will be granted. And really, it's speaking here of prayer. So think of your prayer life. The desires that you have, which have been expressed to God. When do you find it easiest to pray? I know for me, it's really easy to pray powerfully and with all my heart if I've had a really miraculous, wonderful answer to prayer. You know, it lifts up all my prayers. But what about those times when God has said no? When the prayers seem to, or maybe indeed have been, not answered or not affirmed? Does your prayer life suffer if God says no to a desire that you held very dearly? How do you keep praying then? So I'd like to have us look at this proverb, and maybe you could say, think about it in three sections. First, the insight of the wise, and then second, turning to the text itself, the faith of the wise, and then lastly, the prayerfulness of the wise as we apply this passage. So first, the insight of the wise. There are two things, two foundational realities which we have to hold and teach our children in order to understand what prayer is about, and they undergird our prayer life. We have to see everything about prayer and really everything about our lives in the light of these two realities. The first is very simple, that there is a good and a kind God who rules over heaven and earth. He rules over each of our lives. Everything we do is scented with the kindness of God. All of creation, all of nature is filled with evidence of the kindness of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 speaks about how that kindness was revealed in a glorious way in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because he rescued us and saved us. But then it goes on, Ephesians 2 7, he rescued us, brought us to himself, made us members of his family. It says, so that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So much kindness that he's, yes, he's poured out that kindness in Christ, but it's going to take all eternity to show all the kindness that he has for you. That's the God that rules over your life. So Psalm 36, 7 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. The children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You know, 
like any child, we see God and we run to him because we see a kind and a good being. We want to be as close to him. We want to be hugged by his arms as much as possible. A good and a kind God rules the world. But there's a second reality, which is also in the pages of Scripture, beginning in the opening chapters of Genesis and then throughout the whole of the Bible. The world is fallen. You can read about it in many places, but for example, Romans chapter 8 talks about some of the effects, rather, of that fall. That means that everything in creation is bent out of shape. You know, it's not the way God intended it to be. Nature even, as beautiful as it is, isn't the way it's supposed to be. Our emotions, your emotions, aren't what they were supposed to be. Your understanding is darkened, Scripture tells us. And, let's be clear, our desires are bent out of shape. Good desires, created by God, and yet they're bent out of shape. They're under the cold shadow of sin and death. And James chapter 4, verse 3 says that we, yeah, we have desires, we ask for things, but we can't help it, we ask wrongly. In our own, we don't have the power to ask the right things because our desires are also bent. So the wise hold both of these truths together as they go to God in prayer, indeed as they live their lives. Now if you forget the first, that ruling over the whole world, that the one who created everything that exists, the purpose of everything, is a kind and a good purpose. If you forget that everything in the future flows along channels that have been created by a kind and a good God, then you know what? You're left all by yourself. There's nothing left but you. Like Tennyson, the poet, said, you know, there's nothing but nature red in tooth and claw. You're fighting for survival. It's all up to you. Your intelligence, your wit, your strength, your aggressiveness, whatever it takes. If you can't climb your way to the top, you're never going to get there. And so it's all up to me, you say. What happens? Well, prayers evaporate. There's no point in praying because it's just you. The only one who cares about you is you. Maybe a few people around you, they might help you, but ultimately it's you. It's up to me. There's no one up there who cares for me. Why pray? So if you forget this reality of a good and kind God, your prayers evaporate. If you forget the second reality, that the world is fallen, that people in this world will not please you because they don't please God. They won't bless you always. They may derail your life because they don't live in the way that God intends them to live, that even your desires are bent out of shape. Then what happens is, well, when you pray and God says no, you'll be surprised. You'll be shocked. You'll be bitter. You'll be angry. How dare he? This was a really good prayer request. What's wrong with God? Can't he see the wisdom of what I'm praying for. When he doesn't say yes, you'll think, what's the point of prayer? I'm just not doing this anymore. And again, your prayers evaporate. So James 4 verse 3 says, we can ask wrongly. Here's why your prayers aren't answered, James says, because what you ask, you ask wrongly. And the wise know that. You know, if we're unwise, if we're foolish, then we become like little toddlers filling our mouths with dirt, and that clump looks so good we want it, and God knocks it out of our hand and says, no, 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 we get angry and bitter and says, well, that's it then, I'm not asking you for anything. So here's these two realities that we hold in hand. Now let's turn to our text, Proverbs 10, 
24. It says two things. What the wicked fears, what they dread, the very thing they dread will come upon them, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. So it's talking about the wicked and the righteous. The wicked are not those who have sinned, because then it's all of us. There is no other category of human beings. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in particular, it refers to those who don't live a life of trusting in a God of goodness and kindness and wisdom, which is far, infinitely far above those. Instead, they trust themselves. They live by their own desires, which have been bent out of shape by the fall. So the previous verse, chapter 10, 23 Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. That's what they just do. This is just the course of their life. It's their entertainment. It's their enjoyment. But this raises a question. Is this true? What the wicked fears will surely come upon them. There's kind of a note of justice there that we say amen to, but does it really happen? Do the fears of the wicked always come upon them? And then it says... The desire of the righteous will be granted. What they hope for, what the righteous long for, what they beg God for will be granted. Now the righteous, again, are not those who are perfect because there's none like that. There's no human beings like that. Old and New Testament says there's none righteous. No, not one. So in that sense of being perfect before God, there is none. But here it refers to those who live a life of faith. They trust in God. They trust in a God of goodness and glory. Ultimately, they trust in his revelation in Christ Jesus. And so they trust him and therefore they want to follow his word because they know this is a good God and he's a wise God and what better thing could I do for myself and those I love than to do what he says. So they live a life of faith in God. And they express their desires to God in prayer. And it says here, these prayers are not just heard but God stamps them, approved, done. And it makes us think, really? Is life really like that? The truth is that sometimes the righteous pray and their prayers seem to fall to the ground. The wicked, on the other hand, seem to sometimes prosper all the time. Read Psalm 73 at some point. You'll see how bitter The psalmist is against the wicked. He says, why are they prospering, God? What is wrong? Aren't you in charge of the world? They mock you and they do everything against you, and yet they're just living high off the hog. What's going on? That seems to happen. Another example is in our chapter, chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Is that true? Did the wicked die young? We know good Christian men and women whose lives were shortened, don't we? If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the hall of champions of faith. It's all those who are commended for their faith in God. They're the righteous of God. And yet they died. And some of their deaths are described in that chapter. They died horribly, painfully. And of course, in our own church family, we've experienced the loss of some of our own heroes of the faith, men and women who we loved and who were so essential to our church family, who glorified God and honored him, and their lives were shortened. So what happened? What then of this promise? 
What would you say to Mrs. James? Acts chapter 12. There's two incidents recorded. First, the evil king Herod imprisons James the apostle. And after a short imprisonment, James is executed. People like that. And so Herod says, ah, I'll get another one. So he imprisons Peter. And as Peter is in prison, the church gathers to prayer, just as we've done many times. And they're praying for Peter to be rescued. And an angel comes and releases Peter from prison. And Peter appears before the praying church. Here I am. Your prayers are answered. Now here's the question. You know, you know for sure that when James was in prison, the church also met for prayer, didn't they? They were praying just as fervently as they did for Peter. So what happened? One was executed and one was released. And the question I ask is, did Mrs. James, James's wife, did Mrs. James ever pray for anything after that? What would you have done? Was she able to pray then for her friends, for her own needs, for her loved ones, for the church? Or did she say, you know, forget this prayer business. We prayed for James and he died. What's the point? I'm not praying anymore. It doesn't do any good. I don't think God hears. So these promises in texts like this, in Proverbs 10, 24, repeated, by the way, in the Old and the New Testament in even stronger language, call for faith, but it also asks this question. How can we trust these promises? How can we have a robust prayer life after God says no to something that we asked for which was exceedingly precious to us? How do we keep going? So the wise live by faith. They have to trust these promises of God which are repeated over and over again. Ask, seek, knock, Jesus said. And they believe that God is still a prayer-hearing God even after he said no to one of their prayers. And so thirdly, I'd like to ask this question, how? How does that happen? How can we buttress, how can we lay a foundation under our prayer lives after we feel like we've been devastated by God saying no to a prayer that seems so right and so good and that was so dear to our hearts. So lastly, I'd like to look at the prayerfulness of the wise. How do we keep praying? And I'd like to look at four W's, four interrogatives. And the first one is when. Think about the time scale of when this promise of God is going to be accomplished. Look at verse 25, which was read earlier, Proverbs 10. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. When you pray, is God's answer something you should see at the end of the day? You know, you're going to bed and you say, tick, that's done. Is it something you see at the end of the year? Is it something you see at the end of a century? You know, is it something that's accomplished in history? When do you see it? It says that when the whirlwind has passed, when the whirlwind of life has passed away, that's when these things will be true. Really, it's speaking about eternity, isn't it? When all of history has finally been done, then we'll realize that the foundation you were standing on was eternal, could not be moved. What the wicked dreads comes upon him. Sometimes in this life, many examples of that, but not always. But here's what no one can escape. The paramount desire of every righteous man and woman, every Christian, is to see the face of God. To stand before him one day 
Now we see through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 13 says, but then face to face. That's what we pray for and desire. It's behind and underneath everything we pray. But at the same time, the chief dread of the wicked is that one day they will have to stand before the same God face to face and give an account. They'll have to stand before the one from whom they ran all their lives. C.S. Lewis gave a sermon once called The Weight of Glory. And in part, here's what he said. I think he puts it well. In the end, that face, he's talking about the face of God, that face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. The righteous who live by faith in God's revelation of all that he is in Christ Jesus will also stand before him, and it will be a day of glory. Lewis continues, It is written that we shall stand before, shall be inspected by God. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, only possible by the work of Christ, that we shall find approval, shall please God, beloved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. When? When? Verse 24 says, all these promises will be fulfilled. There is a day when all the righteous longings in your heart will be fulfilled, and there's a day of justice when all wickedness will finally be vanquished. It's coming. So think about when when you are praying and when you feel the fervor for prayer draining from you. Here's a second W. Think about why. Why aren't my prayers answered now? Well, one reason, one very profound and critical reason is that our desires are fallen so that our prayers are fallen. What James said in chapter 4, verse 3. We ask and we ask wrongly so God does not answer our prayers. Our desires are not even what we ourselves will approve of a few years down the road. So thank God that he doesn't say yes to everything. That he answers according to his wisdom and his kindness and his love, not according to our foolishness completely. Thank him that he's willing to say no to those things which would harm you and harm his loving purposes and harm those in your life whom he loves. Even if you're convinced they are good. The country singer Garth Brooks wrote this song about thanking God for unanswered prayer. Here's his lyrics. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame. And as I introduced them, the past came back to me, and I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one that I'd wanted for all times. And each night, I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish, I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. You've been there. Admit it. You've prayed those kinds of prayers. But he ends with this. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And he leaves with his wife. So what do we do? Well, we express our desires to God in prayer. Yes, we're hoping for a yes. Why else would we express those desires? But we're glad that a good and a loving God can say no and will say no to those he loves because he loves them and he guards them 
from any harm. So, what do the wise do? Well, the wise do what wise parents do. They never grant foolish requests. Do you? Do you say yes to everything your kids ask for? Of course not. Not if you love them. But when you say no to them, it doesn't mean don't ever ask me for anything. And boy, your hearts would be broken if your kids thought, mom said no, so I guess I can't ever ask her for anything ever again. I'm mad, I'm angry at her, and I'm bitter, and I'll never ask her. No, that's not what you're saying. Not at all. The wise keep praying because they know why God has said no. And here's the third interrogative. Who? Remember who? Your prayers are heard by an exceedingly, unbelievably kind God who has revealed his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at the book of Proverbs, it's describing the normal course of events. We've talked about this. These are general truths. This is how things usually work. This is how God usually does things in the life of the righteous. That's what it's saying. The wise notice, get this, the wise notice that God loves saying yes to his people. He grants the desires of the righteous. That's the general way things go. But God can, and he does, overrule the ordinary course of events, the ordinary course of nature or society. Moses lived to be 120. That's wonderful. Abraham was having children at 100 and beyond, and his wife Sarah got pregnant at 90. I mean, that's verse 27, isn't it? The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 10, 27. I have this prayer that I pray. I want to be like Asher, you know. He was blessed by Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 33. As your days, so shall your strength be. Yes, Lord. Let me have all the strength I need to serve you till my last day and then call me home. But you know what? God may say no to that. I'm praying that, but God may decide, no, I have a better way for you to go. He may not grant my prayer, and he may not grant your prayer. Why? Because he can overrule the general course of life. So we say, well, why pray? Well, that's what the who is about. Remember who you're praying to. You're praying to one who is kind and gracious. You're praying to one who loves to say yes to his people. Psalm 35, 27. The Lord delights in the prosperity of his servant. Do you understand that? He delights to make you prosper in your life, to make your heart overflow, prosper with joy and goodness to have your relationships prosper. He delights in the prosperity of his servant. That's you he's talking about. What it means is that God is inclined to say yes to our prayers. God is more inclined to say yes to your prayers than you are desiring to say yes to the requests of your children on their best days. He's inclined to say yes. That's his kindness. And so we pray. Even after a devastating no from God, we still pray because we trust him. If we ask, Jesus said, we receive. If we seek, we find. If we knock, the door will be open to you. So we say, I'm going to keep going because he's kind. He's good. He loves me. Matthew 7, verse 11, Jesus said, If you then, though you're evil, meaning you're part of this fallen world, mom and dad, he says, if you though, who are fallen, know how to give good gifts to your children. Think about that. You give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven 
give good gifts to those who ask him. That's who he is. If we remember who he is, we keep praying, we keep praying, keep praying. Just hearing a no will never stop our prayerfulness as a people. And then fourth and lastly, what? What should we pray for then? I mean, if my desires are bent and fallen, what do I pray for? Here's the truth. You're not alone in this. This is called sanctification. The Holy Spirit is at work in every one of God's people, unbending our desires, making them the way they're supposed to be. Scripture says we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. Our desires are becoming like his. So we're maturing, you might say. Our prayers are becoming wiser and wiser. There was a time when we used to throw tantrums if we didn't get dirt in our mouth, but we don't do that anymore, I hope. We've grown, we've matured. Romans chapter 6 says, take a look back to the time before you knew the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, before you invited him into your life, before you said, you will be my Lord and my God, and I'll follow you. Where you go, I will go. And Romans 6 verse 21 says, okay, as you look back, just think, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. Those were your desires once, Paul is saying. You would give anything to fulfill every one of your desires, but now that Christ has come into your life, he's changed your very desires, and you look back and you say, I can't believe I did that. What a fool I was. They were deathly. And that process of change is continuing. The Holy Spirit is at work transforming us. So as we grow, we begin to see more and more that what we really want in the depth of our heart is what God wants. And so we think, what do I pray? My desires are bent, but the Holy Spirit is at work. What do we pray? Well, here's what I think would be good. We say, God bless my family. This is what I think would bless my family. This is what I think would bless me and enrich me. Please let it be. This is what I think would help me in my work for you. This is what I think would do it. But you know what, Lord? If you have something better, oh, Lord, please give me that. That's what I want. So rejoice, brothers and sisters, that your life, the lives of those that you love, are in the hands of and under the rule of such a good and a kind God. May that truth make you fervent and unflagging in your prayer life. Amen. Lord, we do pray that you would bless your people. You're a God who answers prayer. And indeed, Lord, the communion meal that we're about to celebrate reminds us of that. Oh, God, you gave us everything. You invite us to your table as friends to sit with you. You desire to have this intimate relationship with us. You call us your children. You call us your sons and your daughters. Lord, all these things remind us that you're a good and a kind God, ready to bless your people. Inflame our hearts, Lord, with robust, strong, holy, righteous prayers. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.